0: Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by NJM Insurance Group, serving New Jersey's drivers, homeowners, and business owners for more than 100 years. PSCG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. New Jersey Sharing Network, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Bank of America, the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities Clean Energy Program. Summit Health, a provider of primary, specialty, and urgent care. The New Jersey Education Association. And by the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. And by NJ Biz, Providing business news for New Jersey for more than 30 years. Online, in print, and in person.
1: Welcome to Think Tank. I'm Steve Adubato with my co-host and executive producer of Think Tank, Nicole Swenerton. Nicole, are we doing all right today?
2: Yeah, we're doing great. How about you?
1: I'm great. And let's folks know why this is such an important program. Talk about diversity of content. Talk about who we have today.
2: Absolutely. So first, we are joined by Stefan Harris, who's a professor of music at Rutgers University, Newark. He talks all about teaching empathy through the arts and through music. It is such a fascinating segment. It's something so different and really, really interesting. We are next joined by Joyce Campbell, who's the head of the Trenton area soup kitchen, talking all about hunger and of course, how hunger has been exacerbated during the pandemic. And then we're joined by two doctors from University Hospital, Dr. Barrera and Dr. Persopolis, talking about the liver transplant program there and all the success that they've had.
1: And by the way, that liver transplant program I believe it's 98% success rate after one year. And Stefan Harris, I mean, it's the first interview. Is it the first segment of this think tank? Yep, yep. Don't miss it. Don't miss any of this think tank, but don't miss that one because Professor Harris not just talks about empathy in music, but how music is such a healing force, particularly in these very difficult times. We taped this 14 months into COVID. It'll be seen after that. Um, So check out Professor Harris, Joyce Campbell, and the two um, doctors, the two physician leaders over at University Hospital. Let everyone know who funds our program.
2: We would love to thank NJM Insurance Group, PSC&G, New Jersey Sharing Network, and Bank of America.
1: i got to ask you something. You didn't expect this. You did not get into this business to be on camera. You are a quote-unquote behind-the-scenes producer who happens to be very good off the air and now clearly very good on. What's this been like for you?
2: It's been a lot of fun. I have to say, Steve, actually, I started out in high school being our weather reporter. So I had a little on-air experience before this. And now after all these years, it's really fun to come back on and to introduce all of the great content that we have here on News 12.
1: But all, let me also put this in perspective. We're taping this on a day that Nicole has been leading an entire... <laughs> it's a, I don't know, eight-show taping that goes on all day with all kinds of moving parts and things that go right and things that don't go exactly as planned. That is Nicole as our executive producer of Think Tank who makes that happen. And then she switches gears um, to do this. I did all that to make sure I could say all these positive things about her in case she asked for a raise. That is Nicole Swenerton, our executive producer and co-anchor of News 12, um, excuse me, the News 12 version of Think Tank. I'm Steve Adubato. Most importantly, this is Think Tank. I'm Steve a welcome. Um, you just saw a clip of Blackout. That is the band that is led by our guest right here, Stefan Harris, assistant professor of music Rutgers University of Newark and Grammy-nominated musician. That's Blackout, uh, your band, and that was, in fact, at Clem's Place at Rutgers, named after the great, late Dr. Clement Price, correct?
3: That is correct. He was certainly a hero of mine and someone that uh, played a major role in helping uh, mentor me and lots of other people.
1: Yeah, and I've said this many times about uh, Clem, a mentor of mine, of ours as well. And thank you for joining us, Stefan. Let me ask you this. And by the way, this is produced. This program is produced in collaboration with Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and Rutgers Newark. Stefan, your music, particularly as we tape this program at the end of April, will be seen later, twenty twenty one. The connection between music, empathy, the arts, and COVID complicated. I know. Please share.
3: Absolutely. Well, one of the reasons that I love music so much is that it's been an amazing uh, force in my life, and it's taught me how to listen. It's really taught me how to perceive the world and understand that everything that I put forth is going to exist in a greater context. And if I want to be effective with my ideas, I have to silence the ego and learn to listen to others first. So really at the heart of improvisational music music is this science of empathy, this idea that the first thing that happens is you learn about other people and you understand that your ideas are always impacted by others.
1: Let me try this, Uh, devil's advocate, things go wrong. Things go wrong in production on our end, happens all the time. It's one of the reasons we're running a little late on your end is we're working with technical issues, production issues. You do the same thing. Things go (laughs) wrong, but you have- That's great. And let me ask you, but in your music, And by the way, do you believe music is different than other arenas? You see that as nothing more than an opportunity. That's right. I actually don't think that music is very different than other arenas. Music
3: is simply a a sonic manifestation of certain leadership principles. So the way that we operate is is we're always looking to create something that's bigger than any one of us could have created on our own. So the element of surprise, the importance of vulnerability, and willing to being willing to let go of certainty is absolutely essential if you ever want to create something that is going to ultimately be
1: innovative. So uh, I, I need to ask you this part. When and how did you become so, and excuse this expression, uh, it sounds terrible saying, when did you become so chill? <laughs> I have have to ask.
3: I want to know the secret.
1: (laughs) It's the music, Steve.
0: I get the opportunity.
3: So
1: wait a minute, Stefan, you're saying because I can't play music (laughs) because I don't know how to play an instrument, I'm in trouble? No, not at
3: all. What I'm I'm saying is... No, no. What I'm saying is the work that we're doing at Rutgers University Newark is creating the opportunity for lots of people who've never played instruments to have access to the amazing creative force of music. My classes are populated with students who are business majors, who are in the law school, who are science majors. They're not necessarily majoring in music. And I think the overall value proposition of art in our society is to awaken one's ability to understand the challenges that they face. I mean, we cannot solve the the challenges that we face if we can't first understand the individual parts. Stefan, how
1: has COVID changed impacted what you do, how you do it?
3: Well, f- well, I I would say In terms of the music industry, COVID just expedited the inevitable. (laughs) I mean, when you think about young artists uh, and you think about the larger industry that uh, for many decades has controlled a lot of the rights of artists, COVID has allowed us and forced us really to really take a closer look at this digital platform and realize that we actually have the opportunity to reach a much wider audience. We have the opportunity to create lots of original content that we can own and then proliferate. So I'm an optimist. I've, in a lot of ways, I think it's brought us much closer together. Uh, In my previous role, I I ran a jazz program. I was a dean- Over at NYU, right? At at Manhattan School of Music. I was an associate dean and director of that program. And when COVID hit, it was fascinating. The first thing I implemented were weekly meetings on Zoom. Most of my faculty were adjuncts, so it was very difficult to get us all together. But as a result of the need and having access to Zoom, we actually became much more of a, a cohesive team because we communicated much more. So there are many things that occurred. Uh, that we needed to adjust to with regard to COVID. But being an improviser, we don't look at it as wrong. We look at it as an opportunity. So here, here is this quarantine that occurred. We accepted it. We didn't try to recreate the live experience on Zoom. We created a totally new experience that leveraged the assets of Zoom to the benefit of our students. And now as we move forward, we're better off for it. And we're going to take what we learned and move forward into
1: the future with it. Stefan, you've been in New York Good part of your professional career. You come to Brick City, my hometown, born and raised, you know, so many others, some real great musicians, jazz musicians like Sarah Vaughn, like uh, Woody Shaw, right? Some extraordinary artists. Um, what is it about Newark and jazz?
2: Oh, and my art? goodness.
3: I mean, I am so lucky to be in the city of Newark. This is one of the most important cities in the development of the culture of the United States in one in the grandest sense. I mean, we're talking about, as you mentioned, Sarah Vaughn and the icon Wayne Shorter. So not only is is there this incredible history, but there's a, a thriving confluence of great leadership in the city right now that understands the role that the arts can play in helping to revitalize the city. So when you look at anchor institutions like Rutgers University and NJPAC and WBGO and the Grammy Museum, these are all organizations that are within walking distance of one another and they're all led by real visionaries who understand that their primary function is to amplify the voices of the people. So for me, I'm incredibly fortunate to come into a beautiful ecosystem like this that is really about celebrating the possibilities of who we are. Nice question: uh,
1: You born to be a music?
3: <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I often say that I'm not a musician. I, I often say that I I have a gift, which happens to manifest itself well in music, and. Making a statement like that gives me permission to dream off of the bandstand. It's one expression. I think ultimately what I'm trying to do with my limited time on this planet is I'm trying to proliferate empathy. And I proliferate empathy through the arts, but I do it when I'm in the classroom, I do it when I'm on stage, when I'm doing corporate leadership training, seminars, it's all about helping people understand the incredible value of empathy.
1: As a student of leadership, listening to you is uh, very helpful, and I'm sure you helped a lot of other people. Stefano, I wanna thank you for joining us, and uh, we wish you and, and the family over at Rutgers, Newark, all the best, thank you. Thank you so much, my friend, be well. You guys stay there, I'm Steve Adubato, we'll be right back.
0: To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media.
4: Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant. And one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org. And be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision.
1: We're now joined by Joyce Campbell, who is executive director of Trenton Area Soup Kitchen. Joyce, thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
1: By the way, as we put up your website throughout the entire segment, because it's so important that we try to be helpful to other not-for-profits, describe the work of your organization.
5: Sure. Uh, The Trenton Area Soup Kitchen, also known by many as TASC, uh, we will be recognizing our 40th anniversary in January. I say recognizing because celebrating hunger uh, is not something that we really want to celebrate an anniversary of. So TASC was founded in 1982, served its first meal, January 13, 1982. And we have always been food first. Our primary mission is to feed the hungry in the Trenton area. But over the years, we realized that people really need more than food to move themselves out of poverty or to create a better quality of life. So we've added an extensive array of programs from high school education, work preparedness, case management. We actually even have an arts program that has been uh, really helpful to our folks in helping them uh, express themselves.
1: Joyce, as we do this program uh, in the spring of 2021, it'll be repeated a few times, how much worse is the food insecurity problem crisis? in your area?
5: Uh, It definitely has increased uh, in Mercer County. Uh, We have seen uh, an increase in requests to us to prepare meals Uh, for the last year. Our kitchen has been preparing 600 meals a day for seniors who live in low-income housing, Uh, you know, primarily because the senior centers aren't open. uh, They're afraid to go out. We've had requests from other areas, from other shelters, from the COVID Recovery Center in Trenton so that the demand has been up. We also know that so we're preparing about 70% more meals here, between eight and 10,000 meals a week. Uh, they don't all just stay in Trenton. We have 16 community meal sites, uh, some of which we've added as a result of the pandemic. And we also have partnered with RISE, uh, which is a pantry in Heights Town. They've seen threefold the amount of people. We have done two drive-through food distributions with them where we've purchase the food because we have been so blessed by the community that then we we fed about 1,200 households each, each of those two times, one in October and one just recently in March, because those folks who are newly hungry, they're actually not coming down to Esher to Street in Trenton. They want to go to a pantry, and that's hard enough for them. So we have clearly seen a a very large increase in food insecurity.
1: Joyce, beyond the numbers and how devastating those numbers are, they they represent people, human beings, families. Help people understand as we put up your website um, what individuals slash families face when they are trying to figure out where their next meal comes from or would come from or will come from or won't come from.
5: Yeah, uh, this this has been an issue that's been around a long time. We have people who choose uh, which bills are they going to pay, which meal are they going to eat, many parents who are, will feed their children and go hungry themselves, um, and it doesn't leave them in a very good position. So it's always a lot of, it's choice, but it's not choice that they want to make. And um, obviously health problems come out uh, as a result of not having enough food and not having good quality food. Uh, I think that one of the things that we pride ourselves on is making sure the food is, is balanced, but it's still very difficult for people and their pride. And I, it's always been that way, but particularly for people who have never had to use the system as a result of the pandemic, uh, really very difficult. Um, but There's choices every day to be made as to how the meager amount of funds they have are gonna be used, and food often goes first.
1: Joyce, the digital divide has exacerbated the situation,
5: how? We have seen this from the beginning. We've always dealt that task knowing there was a digital divide. We have a a computer lab. Uh, We've brought in people to be able to give free cell phones. Um, but what happened with within the pandemic, um, it was even worse because everyone's like, oh, well, services are still available. Just go on the computer or we'll do a virtual visit. Well, for the people we serve, they don't have those resources. Some of our folks don't even have phones, um, but certainly not able to just jump on a computer and have a virtual visit with a doctor. Um, it really, it pointed It pointed out that divide and I have to say the pandemic just kind of supercharged all the issues and barriers we see of people living in poverty. Uh, We, however, I have a tremendous staff uh, in our adult education program have managed to get about 40 of our students uh, learning virtually so that their learning to get their high school equivalency was not interrupted. Uh, But that's because we're fortunate to have had a lot of resources to help those folks.
1: You know, speaking of resources, as a nonprofit production company, we only survive and hopefully thrive because of the support of the corporate community, foundation community, philanthropic community. Same thing is true for you.
5: Oh, absolutely. Actually, I'm very proud to say that 62 percent of our funds come from individuals. It's 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 incredible. Uh, We get a lot of corporation uh, support. We only actually have two percent of our funding from government. And a lot of times, people will say to me, "Oh, that's terrible," but to be honest with you, having private funding means we can really wrap the services around people that they need. That we we don't we can help somebody so much better without kind of fitting them into a pro to a government program. And that's not that's not to down government programs uh, and to say we've had the good fortune of having that individual support.
1: And I'm not uncomfortable saying that there are two entities that support what you do that support what we do, and that's NJM, New Jersey Manufacturers, and uh, PSEG. You know, absolutely. corporate citizenship and corporate philanthropy is what it is, and there's lots of need. There's way more need than there happens to be in terms of dollars for support, so I know that you greatly appreciate their support. Oh, um, absolutely. <laughs> hey, Joyce, so I want to thank you, okay. uh, you and your team, for what you do every day. We, we often say we're proud of what we do as a production company, to try to inform people and create greater public awareness. But that pales in comparison to what you and your colleagues do every day. Joyce Campbell from the um, Trenton area, Soup Kitchen. I want to
0: thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you very much, Steve. Have a great day.
1: You too. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back.
0: To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media.
1: We're now joined by Dr. Nick Persopoulos, who is Medical Director of the Liver Transplant Program at University Hospital, and also James Guerrero, who is Chief of Service for Surgery and Surgical Director of the Liver Transplantation Initiative at University Hospital. Good to see you, gentlemen. It's
6: a pleasure. To Thank you for having us.
1: So, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is that the um, your initiative around liver transplant, the scientific registry of transplant recipients, right? Distinguish it because of what having to do with the one year survival rate of those who have received a transplant? Because it seems to me to be incredible. Dr. Brasopoulos, take it first.
6: Excellent, thank you very much. We are really very excited because this is excellence in patient care offered in the University Hospital by the whole team. And uh, this signifies how important it is to care for these patients not only during surgery, but after surgery as well. So our one-year survival rate approaches 99%, which is the best in the country, and we're really very proud of this.
1: And what, what are we talking specifically
6: about liver transplant? Yes, sir, it's a liver transplant.
1: So 98.7, right up there, I believe, at Harvard Medical School, it's, it's right in the same range. So Dr. Guerrero, let me ask you this. How many people are waiting for liver transplants as we speak right now? Because we we're, 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 we work with the New Jersey Sharing Network on Organ and Tissue Donation. And I'm just trying to get a sense of how serious this problem is. You know, in terms
7: of transplant volume in the country, I mean, there are about between eight or 9,000 liver transplants done in the country per year. And, you know, the real crux of the problem we have is that the, the supply of donor uh, organs really uh, is is... Um is really minuscule compared to the demand um there are we had forty thousand approximately forty thousand deceased donor organs in the u s uh, last year. but um in terms of waiting lists, there's large waiting lists. I don't have the the today numbers for you, but um as I tell my patients, you know it, it's it's for you and your family member it's either it's either a hundred percent or zero percent. so if you're on the list it's it's you're all in waiting for that organ and so the you know the actual number I don't know if Dr. P has a number of who's what the number is on the waiting list right now but um, but you know eight to nine thousand liver transplants a year in the U.S. Um, yeah. and in New Jersey we've ha- we have we average about two hundred fifty to three hundred deceased donors and then of course there's also living donors that can donate a part of their liver um, to to a loved one or a friend or even a stranger so um, the 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 need is huge and and we really just yep. need to draw attention to donation.
1: Dr. Persepolis, let me come back to you because uh, your colleague is right. The number is one, that one person waiting. And, and by the way, let's put this in perspective, Dr. Persepolis, what is it like for, I don't wanna say the average patient because everyone's different, but what are most patients waiting for, people waiting for a liver transplant? What are they facing? What's their life like?
6: The most important thing is extremely poor quality of life. Unfortunately, when the liver fails, there are significant consequences. One of them is mental issues and behavioral issues. People are not able to think straight, they have very short memory, and sometimes actually they cannot perform even simple things in life, like taking a phone call. Of course, drive is out of any concept. Besides that, they are very cachectic, they turn yellow, And this comes with a stigma as well. As you know, people with liver disease, everybody has been associated with alcohol-related issues. And of course, you know, even if they don't suffer from something like this, they're afraid actually to get out in the community. But I I
1: want to be clear though, hold on one second. Uh, I want to be clear on something. My childhood idol growing up in baseball was Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle, in fact, had a liver transplant, but he in fact, Um, spoke publicly about his alcoholism. Is it fair that the vast majority of people waiting for a a liver are not, I don't like to use the word alcoholics, but do not have issues with alcoholism?
6: let's say, alcohol associated liver issues, which is something better than the alcoholic this and that and the other people. Yes, this is true. The vast majority actually of people now are patients with fatty liver disease. Our new way of lifestyle, such as sedentary life, diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension, lack of exercise, especially with the COVID situation right now, is inducing a number of uh, fat in the liver, a number of fat content in the liver, and people develop scar tissue, and subsequently cirrhosis. This is how our liver transplant list, waiting list is looking like nowadays.
1: I'm going to bring your colleague back in. Dr. Guerrero, uh, your colleague mentioned COVID. The impact of COVID, 14 months as we tape this program, will be seen after uh, on liver transplantation? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there was definitely a huge
7: impact in the Northeast, uh, you know, both for our program and the New York programs. Early on in the pandemic, when the the numbers were just astronomical and the hospitals were overwhelmed, um, the really the transplant programs, not only for liver transplant but for other solid organs, uh, really, first of all, there was just access access to the OR, access to hospital, access to PPE. Those were all gigantic issues that really made it impossible to focus on such a, um, you know, while a life-saving um, intervention like transplant is such a complex. Um, surgical intervention. So many programs had to pivot and try to do what we could to keep our our patients that were sick and on the waiting list stable enough till the COVID settled down at some level. The other issue became that with the, such a high prevalence rate, we were concerned that a lot of the organ donors might have occult COVID. And then when we give when we do a, a solid organ transplant, we give people immunosuppressive medicines that reduce that reduce their immune response and. So there were um, throughout the country many reports amongst transplant professionals of, of fresh uh, transplant patients because of all the immunosuppression actually contracting COVID in the hospital because there was so much COVID going around the hospital. So, so I think all programs really took a kind um, to take a cautious look and really uh, reduce their transplant activity to
1: just those that were really going to die otherwise if 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 they couldn't have an immediate transplant. Got about a minute and a half left. Let me do this. Research collaboration, Dr. P, I'm only saying that because your colleague called you that. Dr. Pasopoulos, real quick, research collaboration means what and why is it so important, real quick.
6: It is very important to have research actually within different departments and bring evolution in the new landscape of medication, surgical techniques, and donor potentials. In other words, maximizing the potential of donors by getting organs that they are not accepted. Otherwise, they are considered marginal, so we can save more lives. Uh, Dr. Pasopoulos, Dr. Guerrera,
1: 98.7% survival rate. It's Pretty amazing. So listen, uh, people can find out more. One year survival rate, I want to be clear, correct? It's one year survival rate? Okay, and by the way, University Hospital with Dr. Sharif Allen the former commissioner, Department of Health, um, one of the um, institutions in healthcare that supports what we do. Doctors, thank you so much for for joining us. We appreciate it and educating us. Thanks so much for having us. us. I'm Steve Adubato, and we thank you for your patience, for your being engaged, and frankly, being a part of what we do uh, on every program. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.
0: Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by NJM Insurance Group, PSENG. New Jersey Sharing Network, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Bank of America, the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities Clean Energy Program, Summit Health, the New Jersey Education Association, and by the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, and by NJ Biz.
4: Hi, I'm Joe Roth. In New Jersey, there are nearly 4,000 residents in need of a life-saving organ transplant, and one person dies every three days waiting for this gift of life. One organ and tissue donor can save eight lives and enhance the lives of over 75 people. You have the power to make a difference and give hope. For information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit www.njsharingnetwork.org, and be sure to talk with your family and friends about this life-saving decision.